This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This month, I'll be featuring true crime cases that inspired songs. As listeners know, I almost never cover unsolved cases. There are so many great true crime podcasts out there that do, and personally, I prefer to research cases that have a resolution. But in this first episode, I'll be telling you the story of a tragic death of a young girl and giving you some information so you can decide. Was this a case of a tragic accident or an unsolved murder? This is the story of Catherine Corzilius. August 7th, 1996 was a blazing hot day in Austin, Texas. It was one of those late summer days where you can almost hear the heat shimmering off the pavement. Nancy Corzilius had spent the day running errands around town in her Chevy Suburban. Her SUV was the quintessential suburban mom car, which was perfect for Nancy because she was a suburban mom, always on the go with her two kids, Chris, age nine, and Catherine, age six, in tow. Although it was summer, today was no exception. It had been a busy day. By early evening, Nancy and the kids had been out for several hours. They had kept an appointment with the math tutor and then done some shopping. Today was their father Paul's birthday, and Nancy had taken the kids along to pick out his gift, a new set of golf clubs. They had also stopped at a sandwich shop for lunch. It was almost 4 p.m. by the time they made it back to their house on Elder Circle. Called Rob Roy on the Lake because of its proximity to Lake Austin, their neighborhood was an upscale suburb of Austin, Texas. Home prices began at about $350,000 and upwards of a million, but it was a close-knit community. Their street, Elder Circle, was a hilly and somewhat secluded area. To get to Elder Circle, Nancy entered the division of Rob Roy on the Lake by heading up River Hills Road and then turning off a winding road called Barrett Lane. Just before reaching the turn off her Elder Circle, she stopped the car at the row of mailboxes to pick up the mail. Little Catherine asked if she could retrieve the mail. Her mother agreed, handing her the mailbox key. The little blonde girl walked to the mailbox, opened it, and pulled out some envelopes. She walked back to the passenger side door and leaned in, handing Nancy the stack. Catherine then asked if she could walk home from there. This was something that Nancy occasionally allowed her children to do. It was less than a five-minute walk from the end of the circle to their home on the 800 block. Chris was tired, and it was hot out, so he decided to remain in his mother's air-conditioned car. But Catherine, a week away from becoming a first grader at Valley View Elementary School, wanted to prove that she was a big girl and could walk home alone. Catherine was a bright and happy child who was energetic and loved physical activity. She took ballet lessons and loved to swim. She'd also been part of a children's soccer team. Catherine was kind and affectionate, and her older brother adored her. She was her mother's little angel and her daddy's princess. Nancy met Paul Corzilius when she was a clerk at an airline ticket counter, and he was working as a business manager for rock bands. They married and in 1989 moved to Austin and purchased their home on Elder Circle. It was the same year that Catherine was born. Paul began traveling frequently, especially after his most famous client, 
John Bon Jovi's career began to take off. Paul had been John Bon Jovi's business manager for 10 years, beginning just as the band broke out big time with the release of their third album, Slippery When Wet, in 1986. It sold 28 million copies and spent eight weeks at number one on the Billboard music charts. The album included some of the most popular rock ballads of that decade, including Living on a Prayer, You Give Love a Bad Name, and Wanted Dead or Alive. Paul managed Bon Jovi's business affairs as his band released three more multi-platinum albums between 1988 and 1995. He also saw John through the launch of his solo career when he released the soundtrack for the movie Young Guns 2, titled Blaze of Glory. John Bon Jovi's solo album reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart and also earned him an Academy Award and Grammy Award nomination. Paul Corzelius wasn't just John's business manager, but also his friend. The two spent time together with their families. John had married his high school sweetheart, Dorothea, in 1989. John and Dorothea vacationed with the Corzeliuses, the Bon Jovis bringing their two small children along with them. Stephanie Rose was only two, and Jesse James was just a baby in the summer of 96. With Paul away from home for his job, Nancy became a stay-at-home mom, raising the children and managing the home. Their son Chris came first, and then in 1989, Catherine was born, completing the Corzilius family. Catherine was the sunshine of the family, always happy and upbeat. John also felt close to the daughter of his friend and quickly embraced the role of Uncle John. He delighted in spending time with the sweet little girl and was thrilled when his own daughter was born. Now Catherine was six years old, and ready to experience a little independence as she left the mailboxes in her mother's car to walk the 0.2 miles up the road to her home. She turned south on Barrett Lane and then left onto Elder Circle, waving to her mother as she began walking away. Nancy's car was pointed north at the mailboxes, so she continued on that way, in the opposite direction from her daughter. She then made a right onto Elder Circle. This route was the longer way around the circle to reach their house. Nancy should arrive home just a minute or so before Catherine. Nancy and Chris got home and entered the house. Nancy started putting things away, and after four or five minutes, noticed that Catherine had not yet come inside. She called to Chris and told him to look outside for his sister and tell her to come in. A minute later, Chris returned. He told his mother that Catherine wasn't there. He'd looked up and down the block and had seen no sign of her. Nancy noted that Chris seemed upset, almost on the verge of tears. This alarmed Nancy, but she quickly convinced herself that Catherine had probably stopped at the neighbors on the way home to say hello to a friend. She told Chris they would jump in the car and drive down the hill to the neighbor's house to retrieve Catherine. Arriving a minute later, Nancy knocked on the neighbor's door, but was told that they hadn't seen Catherine. At that moment, Nancy would later say, she knew that something terrible had happened. Nancy Corzilius grew alarmed when her daughter Catherine didn't arrive home after what should have been a four-minute walk. After learning that she hadn't stopped at their neighbor's home, Nancy and her son Chris jumped back in the car to continue down the hill to look for Catherine. They drove around Elder Circle, it was an exceptionally quiet day, Nancy would recall. There were no other cars on the street, and she didn't notice anyone moving about their neighborhood. The day was hot, 
and most of her neighbors were probably either at work or staying inside their air-conditioned homes. Nancy had dropped Catherine at the end of the circle at 4 p.m. It was now just 4.15, only minutes since she'd seen her six-year-old skipping off in the direction of their house. And that's when she saw her again. But now, she was lying face down in the road. Nancy came to a quick stop and ran out of the car toward Catherine. Her daughter was lying on her stomach, stretched out with her arms at her side. She was not bleeding, but had some scrapes on her body. She was unconscious. Nancy acted quickly, picking up her daughter and placing her in the SUV. She rushed her to the emergency room. Nancy would later say that she'd heard you shouldn't move an unconscious person, but she felt she had no choice. The pavement was extremely hot, and she couldn't leave her daughter lying there. She'd made trips to Seton Medical Center in Austin more than once and felt confident she could get Catherine to help more quickly than waiting for an ambulance. Arriving at the hospital, emergency medical workers rushed to attend to the injured little girl. As doctors assessed her condition, it was discovered that Catherine had suffered a head injury. Her skull was fractured. She had no other broken bones nor any internal injuries. Small scrapes and abrasions were found on her left shoulder, the small of her back, on her right hip, both elbows, both knees, and her hands. Catherine remained unconscious and was placed on a ventilator while Nancy frantically tried to reach Paul, who was attending business meetings in New York. When he was told his wife was on the phone, Paul initially thought she had tracked him down to say happy birthday. If only. Upon hearing the news that Catherine had been rushed to the hospital, Paul quickly chartered an emergency flight home. He arrived about 12.30 a.m., but he was too late. Catherine never regained consciousness and showed no signs of brain function. At 11.30 p.m., she passed away. Even in their overwhelming grief, her parents agreed to donate her organs to hopefully save the life of someone else's child. At first glance, it appeared that Catherine Corzilius had been the victim of a hit-and-run accident. But this theory would soon come into question. The Travis County Medical Examiner, Robert Bayardo, ruled it out, saying that Catherine did not have injuries extensive enough to suggest that she had been hit by a vehicle. In his opinion, her injuries were more consistent with falling from a moving vehicle. Because of this determination, the Corzilius's pediatrician requested more photos of the injuries as well as forensic samples be taken. The Department of Public Safety investigated and came up with some possible theories to explain Catherine's injuries. Lead investigator Sergeant Philip Kent only had theories to go on since there was no physical evidence left at the scene, no eyewitnesses, and no other leads. It was first theorized that a construction truck had driven past Catherine and a piece of equipment or debris had flown off it striking Catherine in the head. If true, this would explain the skull fracture. But no debris was found in the road, and as Nancy had observed, August 7th was an exceptionally quiet day. Neighbors said that no construction had been scheduled on the block that day. Investigators then speculated that an object protruding off a car or truck had struck Catherine. If this was the case, wouldn't the driver have stopped to see to the injured girl? Would someone drive off after an accident had caused injury to a child? 
This theory didn't hold much water with the community. Because Elder Circle was located on a hilly, tree-filled area without sidewalks, another explanation was put forth that Catherine might have been walking close to the tree line and a deer had bounded out and hit her. The DPS was unable to offer a conclusion and could only state that they considered the Catherine Corzilius case open and unsolved. The department said there was not enough evidence to give a definitive cause for Catherine's death, although they seemed to lean toward it being a tragic accident. Of course, without answers, the court of public opinion started to weigh in. Suspicion fell on Nancy, with some wondering whether she may have hurt her daughter and then tried to cover it up by staging a hit-and-run accident. Or perhaps, some speculated, Catherine had been left in a hot car that day and was later found unconscious. Thinking she was dead or dying, did Nancy try to divert responsibility away from herself and therefore stage the scene? While these types of rumors about Nancy's responsibility for her daughter's death floated around and can even be found currently on a Reddit thread about the case, there was no evidence of her involvement. First, Nancy had undergone hypnosis to help DPS in their investigation. They hoped that under hypnosis, she may perhaps remember something from that day a strange car in the neighborhood, a person who seemed out of place, etc. She willingly cooperated, something she probably wouldn't have done had she been responsible. No other useful information was extracted during the hypnosis session. Secondly, after it appeared that DPS had concluded their investigation, Nancy and Paul continued to share the information about their daughter's death in order to find answers. They approached Crime Stoppers in hopes of having Catherine's case televised. They also spoke to every media outlet they could and urged others to come forward with any information. They hired a private investigator to have an independent look at the case. Barbara O'Brien and her associate, John Vasquez, began their investigation three months after Catherine's death. Unfortunately, after so much time had passed, they were unable to check out leads that could have been helpful, such as speaking with delivery drivers or other workers who may have been in the area on August 7th. O'Brien, among other things, set out to test the theory put forth by DPS investigators. The agency, still believing Catherine's death was as a result of an accident, thought a likely scenario was that after Catherine walked away in the opposite direction of the car, she decided to hitch a ride on the back of her mother's Suburban. They speculated that she may have grabbed onto the back door of the car to ride on the bumper, but had lost her grip along the way and fallen into the road. Nancy would not have seen her from the driver's seat. One reason for this theory was that it was a mystery as to how Catherine started off walking in one direction around the circle but was found a half a mile on the opposite side of the circle from where she was last seen. If she had continued on the route she set out on, Catherine would have had to pass her house to end up there. No, investigators thought, it was more likely she had been in a car or hitching on the back of one, going in the other direction when she fell. O'Brien, the private detective, rejected this theory as impossible. She pointed out that August 7th had been a very warm day and the Suburban had been in the sun for hours. If Catherine had tried to grab the back door handle, it would have been extremely hot, so it was unlikely she would have done so. But even if she had grabbed the handle and stepped up on the bumper, the only place she could have grabbed to hold on to while the car was in motion 
was the luggage rack or the lip on top of the car. It's unlikely she could have reached that, O'Brien explained. Finally, all of that was a moot point anyway, because the back door of the Suburban was a cargo-type door, and pulling the handle would cause the door to swing open. If all that wasn't enough to prove that Catherine hadn't been hanging onto the back of her mother's car and fell, O'Brien also discovered that Catherine had a metal splint on her thumb from a recent injury. She could not have used her splinted hand to grip the door handle in the first place, never mind trying to do so on a moving car. Barbara O'Brien adamantly denies that Catherine fell from Nancy's car. The Corzilliuses believed that Catherine had not been the victim of an accident, but the victim of an attempted abduction. Nancy said that the way her daughter was laid out in the street was like someone had placed Catherine there for her to find. Her hair and clothes were smoothed down, not disheveled. Her arms were placed at her sides. There was an overgrown lot about 30 yards from the mailboxes where Catherine was last seen. Investigators had employed canines to track Catherine's movements. Her scent had been picked up by the dogs near the mailboxes, and then the trail was lost near the vacant lot. Had she been grabbed by someone coming up the road in a vehicle? Was she placed in a car where the dogs lost her scent? If so, did she put up a fight and jump from the car as it drove around the circle? Did she hit her head then? Or was she hit over the head in the car, with her attacker pushing her out of the car after realizing she had been seriously injured? In either case, did her attempted abductor feel some remorse and check on the girl in the road, positioning her body so strangely for someone to find, as Nancy believed? The private investigator also had no luck finding new witnesses or any other leads. The Corzilius' Homeowners Association put up a $5,000 reward in hopes that someone would come forward with information. In 1998, the mystery of Catherine's death was featured on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Her family was hopeful that airing the story on national television would bring in more tips to finally reveal what happened to Catherine on August 7, 1996. It is unfathomable that in 15 minutes, a vibrant little six-year-old could be found near death on the road and no one could say what happened to her. The tragedy of the little girl's mysterious death also haunted John Bon Jovi. The year after his friend lost his daughter, John wrote a heartbreaking song about the loss of the little girl. Titled August 7th, 415, the exact date and time Catherine Corzilius was found lying in the road, the song was released as a cut on John Bon Jovi's album, Destination Anywhere. I can't afford the rights to the song to play it on this podcast, but here are some of the lyrics. It was another day, a perfect Texas afternoon. A mother and two children play the way they always do. As they raced home from the mailbox, a mother and her son, against a little girl of six years old, the independent one. The deputies went door to door, through all the neighborhood. They said, I got some news to tell you folks. I'm afraid it ain't so good. Somehow something happened. Someone got away. Someone got the answers for what happened here today. Tell me it was just a dream. August 7th, 415. God closed his eyes and the world got mean. August 7th, 415. I've included a link in the show notes if you want to listen to the song. 
Destination Anywhere was released in 1997, and it was John's second solo album. A short film also titled Destination Anywhere was released as a companion piece for the album. The film stars John Bon Jovi and Demi Moore as a couple dealing with the aftermath when their daughter is killed by a hit-and-run driver. As of this writing, it can be viewed on YouTube. Catherine's mother Nancy, father Paul, and brother Chris had their lives turned upside down on August 7, 1996, in the span of just 15 minutes. Families in their community also grieved Catherine Corzilius's loss and sought ways to honor her memory. Some changes made after the tragedy included 25-mile-per-hour speed limit signs posted on Elder Circle. An anti-violence group held a prayer vigil in front of the mailboxes where Catherine was last seen alive, and many memorials and tributes to Catherine were held over the years since her death. A party was held for all the neighborhood children on Catherine's seventh birthday. A mural was painted in the cafeteria at Valley View Elementary School in her honor, and a plaque in the school yearbook was dedicated to her. Neighbors planted a tree and had a plaque made with Catherine's name installed near the mailboxes on Elder Circle. Catherine's parents placed a marble marker underneath a stone angel in their front yard to remember their little girl each time they returned home. They are still seeking answers. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Don't forget to get your CrimeCon tickets. We're less than two months away from opening day of the biggest true crime convention in the world. It will be held May 1st through 3rd in Orlando, Florida. Go to CrimeCon.com and use my discount code ONCEUPON2020 for 10% off your registration and come visit me on Podcast Row. I can't wait to meet you. You can find links to all our events, our sponsors and discount codes social media links, recommended podcasts, and all the resources I use for research at our website, truecrimepodcast.com. That's easy to remember, right? Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Our copy editor is Crystal Dernan. And original music is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Thanks for listening and telling a friend. Until next time, be good to one another.